Well, good morning. Uh, turn with me to your uh, Bibles to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. We'll be looking at a, a fairly decent portion of Scripture. We'll be looking at about 20 verses or so. Uh, but before we get to that, I just wanted to start off by just reading a few quotes um, that I was looking at this past week. Um, some of these people are very... Uh, influential, notable people in history, but the first one that I I saw was a quote by Gandhi uh, saying, man's nature is not essentially evil. You must never despair of human nature. Steve Jobs, one of the minds behind Apple, was quoted as saying, as individuals, people are inherently good. In fact, uh, you don't have to take their word for it. Last year, there was a survey across the US. They took a survey of about 2,000 people and 81% of those who responded uh, and were surveyed, they, they said that they believed that mankind is inherently good. Uh, three out of the four said that they themselves believed to be a, that they were a good person. And uh, when researchers asked the respondents how they would compare themselves to others in their own lives, 46% said they would take it a step further, admitting that in their eyes they were even better than everyone else they knew in their lives. Uh, last week, we, we talked about the Zucchini Festival, how there was this good test that was taking place. People would come to our church's booth. We would ask the question, you know, do you think you're good enough to get to heaven? Most people would say, sure I do, but let's take the test. And they would come very optimistic, hoping that they would uh, reassure themselves that they are indeed a good person, good enough to get to heaven. And as they looked through the Ten Commandments, as they looked through the law, they realized that the optimistic face turned to sadness, that turned to disappointment, realizing that they were unable to be good enough to get to heaven, unable to get there by their own merit. And so uh, realizing that they were not uh, quite as good as they had once thought. And the Bible uh, is very clear, even though men may say that people are not evil, that they're inherently good, the Bible is clear that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And so um, the Bible is clear. The heart of man is desperately wicked. And throughout the the book of Matthew, actually, if you look back on uh, some of the quotes that Jesus has said about the generation of Jesus' time, he refers to them as a wicked and perverse generation, men whose hearts are filled with all sorts of evil. And though the world will tell you otherwise, and they still will today, one thing the Bible makes abundantly clear throughout it is that man is wicked. Man is sinful. And if left to his own devices, without any restraint, man will commit crimes beyond imagination. Which brings us to our passage today, because never before in the history of mankind, I believe, has wickedness been on such full display Never before has it reached such such heights of evil as it did in the execution of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion of God's own Son is the greatest demonstration of the wickedness and sheer evil that man is capable of. This event showcases the extreme depths of sinfulness that man can do, and it seems to be Matthew's particular point in these next verses that we'll read. Uh, This passage that we're about to read, before I go into it, could be taken just purely from the standpoint of God fulfilling prophecies, him validating his word, which he does. And actually, we looked at that a few months ago 
as we looked at God's promises being fulfilled. We looked at the prophecies coming true. And so I don't want to uh, repeat something that's already been done before, already been covered, because to me the main purpose of what Matthew is saying here is highlighting the fact that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was, again, the greatest demonstration and expression of human wickedness ever seen. Matthew also additionally puts in there, kind of gives you a better perspective of the sufferings that Christ went through, not just physically, um, just from being crucified, but all along the way, every step along the way towards crucifixion, he suffered. Not just even physically, also, you know, the emotional uh, hurling of abuses. Um, People were wagging their heads, people uh, questioning his character, his person. All along the way, the suffering that he went through, the mocking, trying to humiliate him on every level, the cruelty that they showed him. And that's Matthew's particular point, is to expose every form of wickedness uh, that they did. Last week, we talked about substitution, how Barabbas, a sinful man, was set free, how Jesus died in his place, essentially. Jesus died as his substitute. Barabbas should have died. Barabbas should have suffered all that Jesus was about to suffer. Barabbas, after all, was guilty of his crimes. It says in the Bible, the wages of sin is death. His wages for his sin is death. He rightfully deserved what Jesus was about to suffer for him. And it extends beyond Barabbas because we are all guilty sinners. We are all deserving of death. We have all been declared guilty before a righteous God. And though we were found guilty as charged for our sins, just as we're about to have to pay for our sins, Jesus steps in the way, if you will, and says, I'll take his place. I'll take her place. I'll die for them. I'll bear their guilt. I'll bear their judgment for their crimes. I'll take their place. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like have sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so as we look at this passage today, I just want to imagine, or put your shoes in, in the perspective of someone as a spectator. A spectator, though, who was guilty. A spectator who was about to endure the very thing that Jesus endured. One who was also guilty, like Barabbas was, and should have endured this thing. And keep in mind, the person that we're about to witness today is doing this in your place, on your behalf, as your substitute. And so I hope with that in mind, as we read through what Jesus endured, you realize that he was doing it on your behalf for you. And so let's read the passage today, Matthew 27. We're going to look at, starting in verse 26, and we'll go to verse 44. Matthew 27. Verses 26 through 44. Then they, belie- then they released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head 
and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And then they had mocked him. They took off the robe off him, put, on his, own clo- put, his, clo- his, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled him to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, he himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if you will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And uh, that is where we'll stop there for the day. But um, if you remember from last week, like I said, Jesus was before Pilate. The crowds were being persuaded by the chief priests and elders, and they cry out that Jesus should be crucified and that Pilate should release Barabbas, this convicted criminal, this thief, murderer, the one who was attempting to overthrow the government. The crowds would rather have Barabbas than Jesus Christ. And so with Pilate knowing full well that Jesus is an innocent man, given already the warnings from his wife telling him to have nothing to do with this man, Pilate decides to give in to the crowds. He washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of his blood. And in verse 26, it says that uh, then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So scourging is something that we probably uh, just glance over and say, okay, well, they whipped him a little bit. And uh, now Jesus is off to uh, the real act of being put to death on the cross. But I, I just want to consider for a moment how severe a punishment scourging was. I mean, scourging was such an extreme form of punishment that some people didn't even make it to the crucifixion portion of their execution because they would die from being whipped. In the scourging process, they would have tied Jesus' wrist to a wooden beam. They would have taken off his clothes. His back would be fully exposed as they stripped him. And uh, he would be at the mercy of a Roman soldier. They would take these large whips like this one and uh, these, these whips would have these leather strands, and tied to the end of each strand would be these little bits of bone and uh, shards and pieces of metal, beads and balls. And uh, the thing is, is that it wasn't just that the leather whip hit the skin and bounced off. It would literally, as it would, uh, as it would go, it would start digging and wrapping around into the skin, the muscle, the tissue, and it would rip out portions of flesh with every strike of that whip. The blood would just be dripping from his back as it tore it up. 
His nerves would be open and exposed. It would just send excruciating pain throughout the rest of his body as it began tearing it up, whip by whip. And let's not forget also that um, Jesus had already been punched and slapped by the soldiers before he was before Caiaphas. It's no wonder that, you know, I mean, this is just the scourging process, just the beating process, but it's no wonder that Isaiah 52 says, there were many of him, many who were appalled at his appearance because he was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form was marred beyond human likeness. And so now we have this severely weakened, bloodied, and in pain, Jesus. And they've thrown a robe over him, and the soldiers of the governor's uh, take the Lord to the governor's palace. And it says in verse uh, 27 that the whole garrison was gathered around him. And it's not just a, uh, a you know, this, this, this garrison is not just a couple soldiers. This is upwards of 600 soldiers gathered around. For what reason? Was he, was he in a state where he could fight off 600 people? He was already battered and bruised. He was already whipped. What reason would they have to be taking him with that many soldiers? And what they would do next to him was even worse than the scourging. And I, as I read through this and as I studied it, it's truly hard to comprehend just what we're about to read. That the creator and sustainer of life is about to suffer even more unimaginable cruelty and mockery and insult from the very creatures he made. In verse 28, it says, And they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. <clears throat> they took off his own robe, which, again, he's just been whipped. This would now open up the wounds that were just starting to hopefully heal. And again, causing more irritation, causing them to probably bleed again. And uh, they place on him this mock royal robe. And they braided together this crown of thorns and they place it on their head, his head. And um, it's this false crown. And they said, you know what? You are the king of the Jews. If you are a king, then here is your crown. If you're a king, then here is your royal robe. If you are a king, then here's a flimsy reed as your scepter. It's a scepter fit for a false king like you, they said. And to humiliate him more, they start bowing down before him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they rose up from the ground. They spit on his face. I've, in nursing, I've, I've dealt with a lot of different body fluids, but probably nothing more disgusting than being spit at. And there is nothing... I think more universally accepted as someone showing their absolute disrespect and uh, lack of concern for someone than to spit on their face. It shows just absolute disdain for the person. And in verse 30, they took the reed, it says, out of his hand, probably in a, a mocking gesture, uh, in, in a way of saying that we're snatching away the pathetic sovereignty and rule that you have. And they began beating him over the head with it. In John 19, it also said they also struck him with their hands. In effect, they're saying, some king you are. And they laughed at him. They said, you know, look at you now, king of the Jews. What a joke. Who could ever take you seriously? Who could ever think that you would be king? To the soldiers, Jesus was nothing more than a fool, a clown, a joke, the object of their mockery. The Jews had said that this was their king. This was, it was, was this the best they could come up with? 
some kind of King Jesus is. Again, this is, by the way, the second time that they have now spit on him and beaten him with their hands. Because earlier in Matthew 26, when he claimed to be the Son of God, when he claimed to be the King, they spit upon him. They punched him. And I think the irony of this all is that they are beating him for claiming to be the king, claiming to be God. Little did they know that he indeed is the king of kings and lord of lords. Little did they know that one day he would come not wearing this mock robe or this crown of thorns, but he would be wearing royal robes. And his head would have many crowns, many royal crowns. And he will not rule with a flimsy reed like a scepter that they gave him, but he will rule with a rod of iron, as it says in Revelation. And at this time, Jesus will bring an end to his enemies, and he'll defeat them. One day, instead of having soldiers worship in a mocking fashion, the Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And at that point, it, will be a no, it won't be a laughing matter as it is now. It will be no joke. In fact, the tables will be turned on them. In Psalm 2, it says that God shall laugh at them and hold them in derision. But for now, the Lord of glory is the laughingstock to the soldiers. His face mixed with spit and blood from the crown of thorns that's pierced through his head. His face being swollen and bruised from the punches and slaps. He is beyond recognition. And to the soldiers, he's nothing more than a fool. And then in verse 31, when they had mocked him, they took off the robe off of him, put on his own clothes, and led him away to be crucified. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. And so uh, Jesus is being taken away now from the governor's palace to a place called Golgotha, which is the Aramaic word for skull. Uh, you know, we, we talk about Calvary, and Calvary is the Latin word for skull. And so they were headed towards Skull Hill. Uh, and many believe that Golgotha was named after this because the, the mountain or the hill looked like a skull. Uh, Others believed it was just called that because that's the place where people would be executed, and that's where the bodies would die, and so it seemed fitting. We're not entirely sure. But for at least for now, Jesus is being led away to this new location, and I want you to see that, again, even his le being led away by the soldiers, by this garrison, is another form of humiliation. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in like a retail store or a grocery store where uh, there's a shoplifter or there's someone who tries to take some goods. And um, if, if you're lucky and you get to see this, it's kind of an interesting thing to watch. But uh, a police officer will come by and arrest them and put them in handcuffs and sometimes to make their point uh, more evident to those around and to kind of deter other people from doing the same thing, they will put them in handcuffs and literally walk them up and down every single aisle in the store, back and forth, back and forth, just to totally humiliate them, to, to, to totally uh, deter anyone else from doing the same thing. Um, and it's shameful. Most of the people, you know, start saying, come on, man, stop doing this. Come on, don't, 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 don't do this. My wife's here or someone else is here. And it's shameful because... It's this walk of shame back and forth, back and forth. Well, in the same way, think about Jesus now. He's walking along from the palace through corridors and through uh, the city walls where it would have been there would have been 
tons of visitors. There would be tons of people seeing this, eyewitnesses of watching him carry his cross. And, uh, you know, think about it. He's battered. He's in this weakened state. He's carrying his cross. There's a procession of soldiers. There's people looking at him. You know, he once claimed to be the Messiah. Now, look at him now. It's a shameful walk to his execution site. It's a walk of shame meant to humiliate the person. And Rome, you know, doesn't mess around with their uh, crucifixions, with their punishments. They want people to realize that if they act up, if they do something similar, they also will endure the same punishment, the same kind of humiliation. And so Jesus carried his own cross to his execution point. But it seems as though, uh, you know, maybe in this weakened state, um, the Romans wanted to expedite the process, or maybe it was taking maybe longer than they were hoping for. And so in order to get him there in a quicker fashion, they compel a man named Simon uh, to carry the cross for Jesus to the rest of the way to Golgotha. Once they arrived till Golgotha, they offered Jesus sour wine mixed with uh, gall, which he would drink as an opioid, something that would numb the pain, something that would temporarily relieve some of the senses he was feeling so that they could then drive the nails through his wrists and through his feet. But as Jesus tasted the wine, he decided that he wouldn't take the easier route. He wasn't going to bear, or he wasn't going to take the easier way out. He was going to bear the full agony that would come with being crucified. He would bear everything that he would endure while on the cross, bearing our sins. He was going to endure it all with his senses intact. He would not drink the gall that they offered him. And so it says he spit it out. Then in Matthew, he says just very quickly, then they crucified him. And he doesn't say anything more about the crucifixion process. And it's kind of amazing how, how quickly he just briefly says that. Because I think, uh, you know, going to church most of my life and um, hearing that, you know, you kind of pass by it again. But if you just examine, just for a second again, just what it would be like to be crucified. The, the pain that someone would endure for this. And I, I just want to fill in some of the gaps here. Because first they would take the cross and they would lay it on the ground. And then Jesus would be laid on top of it. His arms being stretched out. And, um, you know, they have to have a, lar- a nail large enough to support a man. Large enough to hold the body weight upright for the hours before they die. And, um, you know, the nails were actually not typically driven through the middle of the hand because it wouldn't support it enough and it would probably slip through. And so what they typically were found to have found with uh, criminals would be that there's two bones right here on your wrist. And right in the middle, there's a little bit of a gap where you can kind of wedge a nail in between. It would have a lot more support there. Um, And in that, um, in doing that, it would give great support, but also... As the person being crucified, there's a a median nerve right there. It's kind of a large nerve that goes to the rest of your hands and fingers. And so as you, you know, sever through that, it not just goes through the wrist, it goes to the other side. Shooting pain would go down your arm, go to your fingers, go to your shoulder. I mean, you go to the dentist and, you know, maybe the dentist is cleaning it and, you know, your teeth and, and you get maybe just a small little nick of a nerve. And your whole you know, your whole face turns away and your spine tingles. But imagine purposefully a Roman soldier who's, who's paid to kill, who's paid to execute, purposefully driving through the nail, 
through that median nerve, through the other side of your wrist, into that wood, the pain you would experience would be just excruciating. And then, not just for the one wrist, but the next wrist as well, to make sure that he was secured. Um, and then after that, you then have the feet that are overlapped, <clears throat> and then they drive the nail through it into the footrest that they have there to make sure that you know, he has support there too. And then as they would lift up the cross, you know, it would go into the, the hole where it would sit firmly. But can you just imagine, as you're going there, you then just have that jolt where it finally sits place, uh, sits in the, the hole securely. And then again, you're having that, that jolt again in the wrists and in the feet because you've been shifted again. Um, and then the problem you have with it then is that as you're on the cross, it's difficult to breathe because you begin sagging. And so you want to breathe, and so the only way you can breathe is by pushing up with your feet. But as you push up with your feet, that causes more pain to your, to your feet, and then it relieves the wrist, at least for a time. But then as you sag again, then the, the median nerve is pulling at it again, and it's causing more pain. And remember, he's already been scourged, and so his back is already torn up, and then the wooden cross up and down is causing more and more pain, and it's just this constant relief from his feet. Now it's back on the wrist. Relief from the feet, back on the wrist, and then back on the back. It's hurting him. And it's this way for hours. It's, it's torturous. The pain was so bad that crucifixion is where we get our word excruciating from. It's horrible. And he suffered this way for three hours. And um, there was no one who showed him any pity. There was no one who looked upon him and even thought, you know what? I can't believe what he's going through. And what amazes me is that he's going through a criminal's death reserved for the vilest of people. This is the punishment, though, that I deserved. Every person in this room, every person in this world deserved this death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and this is the rightful reward for my sin. If I got what I deserved, I would be up on that cross. I would be the ones there with the nails through my wrist and in my feet. I would be experiencing the agony associated with my crimes. And here Jesus is, an innocent man, and not just an innocent man, but an innocent, perfect son of God, the creator of the universe, being slaughtered by his own creatures. And Jesus didn't resist the nails being driven into his hands. He didn't fight when they led him to Calvary. He didn't argue his case and say, this is wrong, I'm innocent, I shouldn't be here. He didn't protest. He kept quiet. It said he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Acts 2 tells us that Jesus was delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. As terrible as it would be, it was all God, part of God's predetermined plan. Nothing was a surprise to the Lord. He knew exactly what he was going to go through for my sins, for your sins. And it says that he went willingly. In fact, it actually said he went joyfully. It says in Hebrews 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Christ counted the sufferings to be joyful because he knew the end result of his sufferings would bring about salvation. It would bring about hope, a restored relationship with God, peace to all those who would one day believe in his name, and so he went joyfully. What love. What love he had for me and you. What tremendous love he showed. And because of that love, I can say today confidently, 
that Jesus died for me. Jesus died in my place. He took my sins and placed it upon himself. He took my debt and paid for it in full. He endured the wrath of God that I deserved. What a wonderful Savior. I I don't deserve him. I'm not worthy of his love. I'm not worthy of his sacrifice. I should have been up on that cross. But here I stand today, a man who's been forgiven, a man whose debts have been cleared, a man whose sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Praise the Lord for that. And while up on that cross, the Roman soldiers, to pass the time, fulfilled scripture which says that they would cast lots for his clothes. To them, it was, it was nothing more than a game. They would play just to pass the time. And, and Jesus came into this world, it's interesting to see, he came into this world with nothing. And again, he left with nothing. Stripped of his clothes as they gambled for it. The callous soldiers, they had seen it all before. Crucifixion was nothing new to them. But they did, as, as, it went, as they gambled, did they realize who Jesus was? I mean, Jesus had a sign over his head. Over the crucified person, they would have the accusation written. And his, his read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In three different languages at the time, so that everyone could understand it. Everyone could see who he is. And in fact, actually, the Jews were not even proud of that sign because they said it should say that he said he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate resisted that and said, what I have written, I have written. And he left it there for all to see that this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Pilate knew he was innocent and yet still chose to give him away to be crucified. Uh, Much of what we've seen so far is looking at the physical pain and suffering that Jesus went through. But I also said earlier that there is an element of emotional and psychological suffering that he endured. Because as we read on, we'll realize that there are three different groups of people that insult him, that mock him with their words, and they, they make it a point to attack his character <clears throat> and his person. I think we started off with the first group of people already. In, in one sense, if you look at the, the soldiers as they were mocking him, as they were saying, Hail, King of the Jews, as they bowed down in a mocking fashion. They were, they were insulting his character. They are insulting who he was as a person. They were insulting him as, as God. And so I would classify those people as the ignorant wicked. Another group of people that would also fit in that category were the two criminals on his left and right. They joined in the mockery as well. On their deathbeds, convicted criminals, deserving of their death, are, hur- are hurling insults at Christ. These are two sinful men getting what they rightfully deserve, and yet they're laughing and ridiculing the Lord while they're dying alongside with him. These are, what I would say, men who don't know any better. But the next group of people, I would say, are more guilty for what they're saying, because these are the people I would classify as the passerbyers. These are people who are likely comprised of the fickle crowds that at one point in time were praising his name. They were saying, Hosanna in the highest. And they laid down palm branches for his entry. And now in verse 39, they're, they're blaspheming him, saying, and wagging his head, saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This group of people had listened to his teachings. They had heard who he claimed to be. And 
they know, they know what he's done and what he said he was going to do because they repeat back his claims, but this time in a mocking fashion. They had witnessed the miracles before their very eyes. Their stomachs had been filled by the loaves of bread and the fish that he had multiplied. And now, now that he's on the cross, they've rejected him. And even this mocking, even this cruel insults that they throw at him was again all part of God's predicted plan that would come to pass. Psalm 22, David speaks of these very insults prophetically. He says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Even in their wicked taunting, they actually fulfilled what the psalmist said they would do. Not because they had any consideration for scripture, but because the scripture was written by a divine author. Because it was written by God himself. And so these fickle passerbyers, it isn't enough that he's dying. They want to taunt him and mock him in the process. One day they're singing his praises when they get the loaves from him. And the next day they rejected him. They start attacking his person, his power, and even his father's love for him. And today, there are many people who fit this category of these fickle passerbyers. People who have been to church, people who know the message of the gospel, people who know who Jesus is in terms of his attributes, his character. They know what he's done. They may, even, they may have even at one point professed to know him. But when something in their life happens that doesn't go according to plan, or when Jesus doesn't fit how their life model should go in their minds, they move on, they lose interest, and they go on to the next thing. They were only interested in what they could get out of the Lord, and it was never a true profession. I just think of what a tremendous responsibility that is to know Jesus, to know who he claims to be, to know his power, to know his person, to understand the truth, and then to turn right around and walk away from all that. It's a tragedy. And yet people in this world, it's, it's full of passerbyers who taunt Jesus when they once hailed him as their Lord. They know the truth about him and now they've rejected him. These are the group of people I would call the fickle wicked. That's the second group of people. The final group of people, I believe, are the most wicked of all in terms of their responsibility for what they know. And these would be the religious wicked people. In verse 41, it says, Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking, the scribe, mocking with the scribes and elders, saying, He saved others, he himself, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. These are the religious elite, the ones who are supposed to know the truth about who God is, who have studied his word, they pretend to love and they pretend to revere his name, and yet they attack him in so many different ways. First, they mock him for who he truly was. They mocked him as savior. They mocked him as king. They mocked him as the one who trusted in God. They mocked him as the son of God. These are all personal attacks at his character. These religious wicked mocked his power by saying, in effect, Show us another miracle. 
The previous ones that you've done of healing the sick, of raising the dead, of casting out demons, of multiplying food, it's not enough. We want another one. Show us again. Prove it. We want to see it with our eyes, and then we'll believe. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God, and we will believe you. If you are the king as you say you are, if you have so much power and authority, let's see it. Prove it. The fact of the matter is that even if he had come down, they wouldn't have believed him because their hearts were so wicked. They were so willfully blind to the truth that no amount of signs or miracles would ever be enough for their evil hearts. He claimed to be the Son of God, and now they use his claim to mock him. Outwardly, they have this religious appearance, appearing to represent God, appearing to know the truth, appearing to be pure and godly, appearing to love the Lord. And yet, in reality, they hate the very Son of God. Their big religious show is nothing more than just a show. They want, in reality, nothing to do with God. They are blind leaders, false teachers, hypocrites, that in no, in no doubt in my mind will experience a greater punishment than the rest of the crowd of people because they were so much more informed. They knew so much more. They had seen so much more. They had studied the word so much more than the rest of the crowds. And yet they still chose to mock him. They say, in effect, to prove that you are the Son of God, save yourself. And as we know, Jesus did not try to save himself. What he did instead was that he gave himself for us. And the irony is that they thought that if he came down, if he was the Son of God, proof of that would be that he would come down from the cross. When in reality, proof that he is God is that he stayed up on the cross because his mission was to seek and save that which was lost. His purpose was to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, it, it wasn't the nails in his wrist or in his feet that held him there. It was his love for us. He went to the cross as a willing sacrifice, as a substitute for me and for you and for the entire world. He died on my behalf, paid my debt that I owe, and he was determined to bring about salvation to a lost and hopeless world. And so on the cross, uh, Jesus was there dying. And looking out in the crowd, you have three different groups of unbelievers. These ignorant, wicked people of the, the soldiers and of the, the criminals on both sides. You have this group of fickle, wicked people of the passerbyers. And then you have this group of religious, wicked people of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Everyone at the scene of the cross represents an unbeliever today. If you're an unbeliever, you're either ignorant or you're knowledgeable and you once knew and professed and yet now you don't follow the Lord and you've turned away from that. Or you're a religious believer, unbeliever who pretends to know God, pretends to love him, and yet there's no inward reality that you actually do know him. Everyone in their life will encounter Jesus. And as evidenced by this crowd of people, you'll either make the decision to mock him and ridicule him, or you'll choose to realize what he's done and to sincerely worship him and praise him for what he's done. And if you don't know the Lord, you have it there laid before you in this scene, the greatest display of love ever shown to mankind. God gave his son to die on Calvary for our sins. 
so that we don't have to perish, so that we can have eternal life. This is the peak of love. Jesus endured all the shame, all the suffering, all the torment for us. And in the same token, it's also the peak of wickedness for mankind. They rejected their creator and nailed him to a cross. And yet in the midst of the cruelty, in the midst of hatred, in the midst of evil on the part of man, Jesus says one of the most remarkable things on the cross. He says in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We see on the cross, Jesus truly was a friend of sinners. I've said this before, but again, this is the greatest display of human wickedness ever before seen on that execution day. And at the same time, never has love reached its highest points as when Jesus died for us. And think about it. Even in that group of wicked people, those three different groups, Jesus saved different people out of each of those groups. You have, at first, the uh, ignorant wicked. And you read later on in other Gospels that actually one of the criminals who was at one point hurling insults at him turns and actually trusts the Lord hours or maybe even minutes before he passes away into eternity. He realized that he was guilty of his crimes and he accepted God's offer of salvation. You think about the wicked soldiers who nailed him to the cross. One of them, as we'll learn about more next week, realizes that truly this was the Son of God. He acknowledged that it was the Son of God being nailed to the cross. And it looks like he ends up turning and trusting the Lord that day. Some of the crowds realize later on what they had done in mocking him. And by the time you get to Pentecost, there are thousands of men and women who are now bowing the knee to Christ. Even it says some of the priests were saved in Acts. And so clearly God's grace is on display to even some of these wicked crowds of people who one day were nailing him to the cross. And now they've come to know him as their personal savior. And so the same applies for today. If you're, if you're a believer today, God has been merciful in saving you from different walks of life. Some of you may have been ignorant and went most of your life without even realizing you had a need for Christ. And later on in your life, you realize that need and have come to know him. Some of you have come out of different religions and uh, now you come to know the truth. Some of you were fickle about your approach to him and now you genuinely have a personal relationship with him. And what's amazing is that no matter what walk of life you came from, God saved each of us from different, different portions of our lives. And we come together on a weekly basis as believers to celebrate that God has forgiven us, that he has saved us, he has redeemed us to himself. And each week we can remember that God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a tremendous love that Jesus had for us, that he would die on our behalf that he would endure the torment and the abuse being hurled at him for us. What an amazing love. Let's just praise him and thank him. Dear Lord, we, we look, and this is such a sobering passage. It's such a horrific thing to look at, Lord, what you endured um, by the hands of wicked sinners. Lord, we see the torment, the physical and emotional and psychological torment you endured on our behalf. And Lord, we're just so grateful. We're just so thankful, Lord, that because of your death on the cross, Lord, we are forgiven. We are um, 
our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, Lord. And we are just so grateful, Lord, that you have displayed such love and kindness and mercy towards us. Lord, we just pray that you would um, just, if there's anyone today who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would still continue being mercy, merciful to them, Lord, and save them from their, their wicked state, that they would realize their need for you. Lord, and I pray that they would come to the saving knowledge of you. Lord, I thank you again for dying for us and for giving your life for us. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.